if anything good did happen, then I could not celebrate it because it certainly would not last long. Uh, I had lost most of my friends just because I had become such a negative, pessimistic, cynical, sarcastic person. Um, I had people who called me Eeyore, and you know, I was just unhappy. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, author and coach Bruce Van Horn. Bruce wrote the book, Worry No More, and this was a story that just resonates in my spirit every time I've listened to it. If you know anyone that's gone through a dark season, whether it be loss, depression, negativity, health issues, this story has all that and more. Learn how Bruce moved through each of those seasons into a life of peace and joy. Here's how my co-host John Ramstead and I got this conversation started on this edition of Eternal Leadership. All right, Steve, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Bruce Van Horn. Bruce, welcome to the program. It is just an honor to be here, guys. Thank you so much for asking me. Now, Bruce, we were I've been following you. Um, your, your blog is outstanding. It's some of the best content out there. Your podcast, Life is a Marathon. You're a best-selling author. Uh, this great book, Worry No More, which we're going to be talking a little bit about. Um, but more importantly, uh, Bruce, I just love your heart. I love what you're doing with your coaching, your speaking, and your writing, because you are so in alignment with what Steve and I are trying to do, is just equipping and inspiring not just leaders, but just everyone to really embrace who they are, but then have the courage to step into it. So thank you for who you are. I'm really excited to have you on and uh, would love you to just start out, Bruce, and just share a little about who you are, your background, your story, so our audience can get to know you. And then we're going to dive into some really, really great topics. Sure. You know, the, the thing that I like to start with is that, you know, it's easy for people to look at my life now um, and, you know, think, well, best-selling author, podcast in 188 countries around the world. And, you know, <laughs> look at my Twitter following, which is just crazy how 378,000 people have any interest in what this middle-aged white guy from North America has to say. Just blows my mind. But so it's easy to, to look at me now and, and think that life has just always been this way. You know, and, and we do that with so many people who are in the public eye or in leadership positions. And we think, oh, well, they were just born that way. Well, I, I wasn't born that way. <laughs> and that's you know, true. Like, we do have a tendency to look at where people are now and say, wow, they are, they are so far ahead of me on the mountain. Yeah, and we're like, you know, I, I, how do I even get there? I don't even know how to make the first step. So yeah, I'm, I'm I love 50, that you're going back 50, to the almost beginning. 50, yeah, almost 52 years old. And most of what's happened in my life has happened in the last you know, two and a half to three years. And so I, I, it took me 47 years to become an overnight success. Well done. You know, even that is, you know, the, the whole success part of it is all, is, it's all relative and from a, a position and perspective. Um, you know, so without going through all of the details, I spent the overwhelming majority of my young adult life doing what most young adults in North America or most, you know, you know, industrialized cultures do. I spent my my life um 
pursuing the almighty dollar, pursuing the material things, pursuing anything outside of me that would affirm me. So I, I knew that I was not happy in the core of what I was. I was unsettled. I was not getting, I was not feeling the kind of fulfillment that I thought that I should feel. And so I kept seeking other things, external things to, to fill that. And so it you know, may have been, you know, I, I constantly wanted affirmations or, or love as I wanted it manifested from, from my wife or from, from my kids or from my boss. And I thought that, well, I had to make more money in order to, you know, to be, to feel successful. And so what, what I've talked about recently is that, um, there's a reason that it's called self-identity and self-worth and, um, you know, the problem, because it, it has the word self in it, it's got to come from within. It ultimately has to come from God, which, you know, somebody in their minds might be thinking, well, it, it, isn't that external to you? And no, not at all. When you have a real understanding of God, God is as internal as it can possibly get. Um, well, actually, but, Bruce, that is a great point uh, that I, you know, I think one of the most important questions we can answer for ourselves is really who is God and then who are we? Yeah. And so I, I have this conversation with a, a lot of people because, you know, so, sometimes it's it's taught by by very well-meaning Christian leaders, you know, but who who um this idea of self-esteem and self-worth is, is popular these days, and so people, you know, within the the, the Christian world are, are quick to to take a, a stand against that and say, oh, "Well, no, no, your esteem has to come from God." And well, there is no self, you know, as my understanding of it, you know, God being omnipresent, God, you know, get, you know, it's, it's not like God is just this ghost that's hovering up above us and following us around all this time. Um, God, the God is omnipresent, you know, and so Psalm, oh, whatever, you know, where can I hide from your spirit? You know, where can I flee? You know, and, and there's, you know, there's all of, all of the rest of that. But what basically where I was going with this is that I had decided because it was sort of domesticated into me as it, as it is so many people that I had to be the best employee. And then I became a, an employer. And so I had to be the best employer. So I had my work self and that incorporated a certain part of my identity. And then I got married. And so I had to be the best husband that I could possibly be. And that incorporated a certain part of my identity. And then I had kids. And so I had to be the best dad that I could possibly be. And so there, whether anybody else put pressure on me, there was always this pressure to be the best something else, whatever the roles that we play, um, you know, even, even leadership roles. And so I had placed all of my identity in those buckets of roles. And so if there were trouble, if there were problems at, at work and my, part of my identity is my ability to earn money, and so if there's financial problems, then that's a wound to that part of my identity. If my relationship with my wife is not what it should be, then there's an emptying 
of the account of that identity. So if at any given point in time throughout my adult life, up until I was around 42, 43 years old, when something radical happened to me, um, if you had said, Bruce, who are you? I would have described to you, as so many men do, I would have described to you all of the things I do. And I couldn't have told you who I am because all of my identity was outside of me. It was the roles that I play to the point where Bruce, as a human being, disappeared. So it was, so totally I, in, it was totally wrapped up in what you did, not who you were as a person. No, I couldn't have told you who I was. Other than I could tell you what I was feeling about who I was, which was totally empty, totally drained, totally depleted because I was spending so much energy to try to keep those balls juggling in the air to, to keep the work in balance, to keep the relationships, to keep the, the parenting all in balance. And it was just draining and draining and draining and, you know, not understanding that it's really out of the overflow of what's inside us that we are able to to take care of and to provide for other people. And, you know, so this idea also that I can't take time to just nurture myself, to nurture my soul, because I had this impression that self-care is selfish, you know, that I need to constantly be giving and focused on other people and constantly serving. I see this in the church so much, which is why our churches are filled with burned out people because they, they think they've got to give and give and give and that there's something, I don't know, somehow or another holy about that. And while we're called to give, we can only give from the abundance of what's in us or it's depleting. And that's not what God would have us be. So, so jumping, jumping ahead, I, I did make a transformation when I was uh, 42 years old. It really wasn't until I was almost 43, but about the time I was 42 years old, my older brother, so this would have been November of 2005, and my older brother came to town. I live in Richmond, Virginia. He came to town to run the Richmond Marathon, and I had not run a hundred yard dash since I was in high school. <laughs> I, so, and, and I knew that I was radically out of shape. I couldn't keep up with my kids. My boys were eight and two at that point. And in the midst of all of that, um, you know, another piece that's really, really important was that by the time I was 42 years old, I filed bankruptcy when I was 26. I started a company and it did not go well. Then there were issues in, in my marriage. We had kids. And uh, in between my two boys, who are six years apart, we had a daughter. And my daughter died tragically. And excuse me, 15 years later, I still can't talk about it without mm -hmm. tearing up. And, you know, it, it cost us in the neighborhood, well, the total medical expenses were in the neighborhood of $1.2 million to keep her alive for eight days. And, and we lost that battle. And my portion of it was about $400,000. I was underinsured wow. or things just weren't covered. I struggled for years to try to dig out from under that and just, uh, I resigned and I couldn't do it. So I, fi I had filed bankruptcy yet again. So here's Bruce, another failure. And so I was just miserable. I was looking at bridge overpasses and tall buildings a little too long. And while I can't say I was 
actively considering suicide, it would not have taken very much to to move me in that direction. Uh, I certainly was at a point where, my goodness, if I've lived the next, if I've lived this 42 years of life as unhappy and unfulfilled as I am feeling, and the longevity of men in my family puts us in our mid 80s, so if I've got to go through another 40 some years of this, I want no part of it. No part at all. So, Bruce, my, if you go back to that time with your identity that you've described so just entrenched in, you know, what the world was feeding you based on what you were doing and just everything going on in your life, how, how did you get through that? Hmm. Not well is the, is the real answer. I got through it just day to day. And, you know, the highlight of my day was going to bed and the, you know, it was simultaneously the hardest part because I knew more than likely I'd wake up in the morning and I had this mindset that nothing good was ever going to happen. If anything good did happen, then I could not celebrate it because it certainly would not last long. Mm. Uh, I had lost most of my friends just because I had become such a negative, pessimistic, cynical, sarcastic person. Um, you know, I had people who called me Eeyore. And mm. you know, I was just unhappy. And you would think that, oh, well, I've got these two healthy boys, that that should be feeding my soul. And, and I would have to say that, yes, it should have been, but it wasn't. Um, it just wasn't. And, and then my brother came to town, he ran the Richmond Marathons, had dinner with us that night, and he said a phrase to me that changed my life and saved my life. And he, he is not a motivational speaker, had no intention that God would use his words in a way that literally would change my life. He said, Bruce, you should do this. I said, I should do what? He said, you should run marathons. And I laughed at the man. I was out of shape. Um, I did not like running. And, you know, I, I live in this great community, as a lot of people do, where everything that I need is within a five-minute drive of my house. Most of everything that I want is within a 10-minute drive of my house. So I don't even like to drive 26.2 miles unless I'm going on <laughs> vacation, let alone think about running it. And he's, he said to me, he said, Bruce, the hardest part about running a marathon is making the decision to do it. And... He left and I thought nothing of that. I thought it was a lie because I was really convinced the hardest part about running a marathon was, you know, the running part. Um, but those thought that those words gnawed at me and I thought, well, you know, if my older brother can run marathons, I can at least join the gym and try to get in a little better shape. And so I did. And that really changed my life. Because it was during that process, it, it, was, it was the turning point of this, um, the metamorphosis of what had to happen in my life. Because I realized, and it didn't occur to me that my brother was right, but in order to get up and go to the gym every single morning, what do you have to do? You have to make a decision to do it. You know, if you decide not to, then you don't go. But those thoughts weren't kicking in my mind. So I, I got to the point where I could run a little bit. And then I got to the point where I could run two miles. And then I could run three miles. And I was starting to enjoy it. I enrolled in a neighborhood 5K. And that was a lot of fun. And then I ran a 10K. And then I decided in uh, the spring of 2006 to just 
why not? Let's try it. And so I started, I went from 10K to marathon training. And it was during a long run. And I don't remember what day it was. I wasn't journaling back then. But I was out for a very early morning run. I like to run early in the morning just because when my boys get up, my day is just kind of very unpredictable during the summer um, because I, I am a single dad who works at home. And you know, even though I was married then, um, I, I still was the primary caregiver for my boys. And so I'd, I'd go and I'd run and I like to run in one direction, running west, so that when I turned around, I would be running east and the sun would come up. And it was just always a peaceful thing. And as I was running, I literally had one of these, oh my God, moments. And I came to a complete stop in the middle of the road. And my brother's words came crashing into my head and said, the hardest part is making the decision. And what, what God really revealed to me in that moment was if you had said, Bruce, what are all the problems in your life? I would have described them. So I would have described relationship problems, financial problems, out of shape problems, you know, and I would have had all of the fingers pointed to things other than me. I had everyone to blame, including God. You know, was quite unhappy with God at this point because he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do in my life, right? And it occurred to me that everything, absolutely everything is thought. Everything is a decision. And I didn't have financial or relational or physical out of shape problems. I had one problem. I had a Bruce problem. I had what Zig Ziglar called uh, stinking thinking. <laughs> I was total victim. I blamed everybody except the only person who was responsible for my unhappiness, and that was me. So, in and, the, you know, in that moment when you had this moment of clarity, this revelation, if you think back on that, what what is the biggest thing that you just you noticed at that time? That. Um, see, I always thought, and it is, it is so easy to be a victim, mm -hmm. to not have any responsibility. But what I realized that was my life is only going to change to the extent that I change. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Dr. Wayne Dyer, who just passed away yesterday. And, you know, he, one of my favorite quotes of, of his was when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I had, I knew that everything that I had tried, you know, I, I tried to get my wife to change. I tried to get my kids to be who I wanted them to be. I, I tried to get everybody else to change, but Bruce wasn't willing to make any change. I had to take radical responsibility for everything in or not in my life. Radical responsibility. No more blaming. No more pointing the fingers. And the only way that I knew that I could change was by changing the way I think about myself, about my circumstances, about God, about other people. And so that really was the transformation. And and, and it wasn't a quick transformation. You know, you don't train for your first marathon, you know, one day and run it the next, you know. So it, it took years of learning to, to let go of the old beliefs, 
the beliefs that, you know, that, that the world is responsible for my happiness and this idea that happiness can only come from within and only from this knowing that, that I am a miracle and, and just trusting that my life is, and, and I look back at all of the things that have happened to me, including the death of my daughter, including cancer a year ago, including, including my, my divorce. Those were all part of God's perfect plan for my life. And, you know, in, in the moment, was I happy about the death of my daughter? No. No, not happy about that at all. Um, but I can honestly say if I had the ability to go back and undo it, would I? I'd say no, I wouldn't. Because I now see it was a gift. It was the gift of a holy loss is a phrase that I like to use. That her little life had meaning because over the last 15 years, as my life has changed and my career has changed and I'm doing things that I never thought I would ever do, um, I would dare say that her little life has touched thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives as I've talked about her. And so her life had purpose and meaning. And, you know, and so, so did cancer a, a year ago, which sort of brings us up to, uh, to, to current times. You know, so Bruce, you know, I can relate to this. You know, I shared a little bit before our, our interview just about my accident and the recovery. And, and it, it has really changed a lot of things in our life. You know, things uh, like my wife having to go back to work and taking some of the, you know, the kids out of homeschool and putting them in school. And in the big picture, are they really that big of a deal? But like my wife and I were just talking last night because um, one of the things that God shared with me at the accident when he spoke to me first thing he said to me is all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. But what my, but what Donna shared with me last night is, man, she just doesn't see that right now. Where is God's hand in this? So what would you share with people who are like right now listening to this, who are right in the middle of this storm, God's not making sense and, and they just don't see the, you know, where this is leading to. Yeah. And, um, I, I can so relate to that. And I had so many people, you know, I, I came to, to faith in Christ when I was 27 years old and, you know, and, and that was a, a real and radical transformation in and of itself. Yet I still transposed my beliefs about the way life was supposed to work and about the way happiness was supposed to work onto my, my belief system. And, so I had lots of people showing up in my life and very well-meaning people. Um, but it was all about, you know, Bruce, well, you should. And, you know, this is what you need to do. And, well, you know, if you really were a Christian, you know, <laughs> and, and it was just not what I needed to hear. And so, you know, I, I rejected that. And, you know, again, they were well-meaning Yet some of the things that I love in Scripture um, is the story of Job, at least the beginning of it. Or, you know, after all of the, the tragedies, Job's friends show up and they do the right thing at the beginning. You know? <laughs> they, they keep their mouth shut. They keep their mouth shut. They just sat with the man and grieved with him and said, I love you. 
how can I help you? So I, as I look back in, you know, when, when I couldn't buy groceries, you know, bags of groceries would just show up on my front steps, you know, or people would show up and say, Bruce, you know, we know you're super busy. You're trying to keep all this together. Can I just cut the grass for you? No judgment, just how can I help? How can I take the load off? That's the kind of friend to be. The other story that I love in scripture, and, and the problem is that it, it gets interpreted in so many really interesting ways, but I love the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And while there are letters there that are letters of condemnation, um, the overwhelming, the, the churches, you know, God says over and over and over again. And I think it's the, I think it is the big picture of what John had to say in the book of Revelation is he's trying to give the church hope. And I love the acronym hope and breaking it down into the words H-O-P-E, hold on, pain ends. And the, the over, you know, God says, I know your service. I know your heart. I know that you are being persecuted, punished, killed. You're being socially ostracized. You're being financially um, limited in your ability to conduct transact, you know, to transact business. Hold on. There's good coming and just trust. That's all you have. You don't have to do anything. Just hold on. And that, that would be my message. I'm so glad. Um, there's, a, there's a song by a Christian recording artist, Charlie Peacock. And uh, there's this, this line. He says, and he says, I know the kind of pain where you can't get your breath. You say, if this is life, please bring me death. Then he says, but thank God that wish I made never, ever came true. You know, so it's, it's just holding on and, and trusting that... I don't know, you know, we, we want to judge things, things that give us happiness, um, you know, and, and this is a, a big rabbit trail, but it ultimately, I think, maybe where, where we need to go. We tend to judge everything as good or bad based on the pleasure or pain it brings into our lives. So we think that the death of a daughter. We think that cancer, we think that the end of a relationship, we think that financial hardships, we think all of those things are bad. Or we think that, you know, successes as the world defines success is good. And that's not how God judges them. Um, How do you view those things now, Bruce? I view them all as perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, believe, I believe everything is, and I write about this in the last chapter, well, the, 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 in my, my book, Four Steps to Stop Worrying and Start Living. So it's really five core chapters, four steps on how to stop worrying. But then once you get a handle on that, the, the fun begins. And how do you start living? You know, and so the, the, the fourth step I describe, as I, the chapter is titled Rest in Peace. And I describe five things that all start with the letter P. And the first is a perspective. And, you know, it's, it's this perspective shift that I don't necessarily need to judge whatever it is that has come into my life because I don't know yet what it, it's difficult right now. But 
the death of my daughter has been a tremendous gift to me and to so many other people because it has allowed me to see the, the impact. Cancer totally transformed my life and taught me so many things that I thought I had a good grip on, but, but it was sort of God saying, ah, oh, Bruce, you have no idea <laughs> of just how much I love you and how much I provide for you and how all of this, it might not fit into your plan, but you see, I've never been really good at getting God to come in alignment with my plan. And, you know, and so as I, I learned to just let go and not in a I quit despondent kind of way, but this idea of real surrender is, is a very peace giving thing and just trusting. You know, I still, so, you know, there's, there's this, uh, I don't know, paradox, if you will, that, um, you know, God says, yes, you know, I, I feed the ravens and, you know, but here's the deal. Do, does he provide for the birds of the air? Absolutely. But he doesn't throw the worms up in the tree. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the raven is required to get out of the nest and do the work, but it's the, the trusting that everything happens for a reason. And so trying to not prejudge the the situation by the level of of pain or happiness it's bringing me bruce go back to the cancer story because we were talking about it before we went on air exactly what happened with that it, it, it was very severe in terms of what you went through how did that very challenge soon. where you were and how did it reinforce sure this this growth process yeah because i was you know and i know that just where I was, had I gotten this diagnosis when I was in my 40s, I would have committed suicide. It would have just been one more thing. Um, but, you know, again, looking back, God was preparing me and, and is always preparing us for whatever is next in, in our journey. And we, we don't always see it yet. Um, so just, just a quick plug, because I, I'm assuming that a large percentage of your audience is men who are in leadership positions and, and various, you know, and, and not to say ladies, but for you, you ladies who are listening to this show, you know, breast cancer awareness is, is all is all over the media and we're all aware of it. We're encouraged as men, we are encouraged to, um, to, to poke and prod our wives to go get their mammograms and stuff. Um, prostate cancer kills a ton of men every year. And the problem is that they don't start testing for it until you're 50 years old. So just a real quick plug here, men, if you are anywhere even close to 50, if you're over 50 and have not gotten your PSA checked, then you've got to do it today. I was fortunate I, uh, in that I was a little bullheaded. I, when I was 44 <laughs> years old, I told my family physician as he was drawing blood for my cholesterol, I said, you need to start testing my PSA. And he said, no, we don't do that until you're 50. And I said, no, with me, you start doing it um, like today. And he, <laughs> uh, he said, no, seriously, we don't start testing your nobody gets prostate cancer before they're 50 so we don't even start testing it and i i we were friends and i, I said rob you misunderstand the patient doctor relationship um you actually work for me and so he he did test my prostate and 
just just a quick overview of that. The the PSA test turns brings back a number. Every man who is alive and has a prostate has a PSA number. And it ultimately doesn't matter what that number is. My number when I was diagnosed with cancer was 2.75. That number in and of itself is not a large enough number to cause a great alarm. Um, I know guys who have PSAs around 15 who don't have cancer. What they're looking for is how much does that number change from one year to the next. And that's the indication that something is wrong. And so had I waited until I was 50 to get my very first PSA taken and that number came back as 2.75, I would be dead today Mm. because it had jumped from 2.0 to 2.75 in one year. And they only want it to grow about a tenth of a point per year. And so I already had, at age 50, I already had stage four prostate cancer. And so my, my doctor called me with the news um, September, or February 17th of 2014 at 9.22 in the morning. I, uh, I got a phone call. I knew who it was from the caller ID. I was expecting, he, he said, Bruce, you know, we needed to do the biopsy. Um, but he, he's like, you know, this is, let's not get, alarmed by this 2.75 still a really low number so let's not be concerned about this yet at that moment when I saw the caller ID I just put my youngest on the school bus um, I knew exactly what he was going to tell me and I knew that eating a bowl of mini wheats that morning was going to be the last normal thing I would do for a very long time and so he called me and when your doctor is fighting back tears, yeah, that's not a good sign. And you know, so life was just a whirlwind from that moment on. You know, so there were tests, there were bone scans, every everything. The cancer was so advanced that I did not have a lot of chance to really discuss alternative treatment methods. Like so many forms of cancer, it is extremely treatable. Um, with lots and lots of different treatment methods available if it's caught early enough. Mine was not caught early enough, so we had to do surgery. Now, to answer your question, how did I deal with that? Um, it knocked me on my butt, frankly, for a couple days. I sat at my kitchen table and cried for a couple hours because I, you know, um, I, I was just recently, within the last year, divorced and have full soul custody of my two boys and that's another story in and of itself and so the um all these thoughts racing through my mind who's going to take care of my boys how is you know what's going to happen to them if i die you know or at least you know if i'm not able to function like i used to function all of these thoughts run through my mind and then i did i just felt a peace wave over me that just said don't judge this we don't know if this is going to be a bad thing or a good thing. And so I sat my boys down. Um, I, I had to collect my thoughts for a day or two, so I did not tell them that day. So I had to figure out, you know, I had to get grounded within myself. But I, I sat them down. And I, I said, boys, we don't know what the story is here yet, but we're going to go through this. And I don't know what the outcome is, um, but we are going to smile. At least I'm going to smile 
the entire way. And we are going to tell ourselves a story in which I am victorious in one way or the other. I may not be victorious physically, but I will be victorious emotionally, spiritually about this. And I will not blame anybody. I will take full responsibility for it. And we are just going to do what we have to do. And, and so that's, that's really what we did. And then I, I had my surgery uh, two months, uh, three months later. So I had my surgery in April of uh, 2014, and it did not go as expected. Uh, prostate cancer surgery is normally a bloodless surgery. Uh, other than the cutting of skin on the, on the belly, it's normally a, a bloodless surgery, but mine didn't go quite as planned. And I lost uh, 70% of my blood on the operating table, which should have been an hour and a half surgery. And one night in the hospital was a five-hour surgery and a week in the hospital in which I was discharged, not because I was ready to go home, but because my insurance company said, you're going home. Um, so... Mm. You know, and, and at one point, the anesthesiologist says, Doc, you've got to do, you've got to wrap this up. We're losing him. And I love my surgeon. And I will say right up front that my, my bleeding was through no fault of my surgeon. He was a hero and, and saved my life. And I praise Dr. Morgan every chance I get because he, he stayed on focus. He stayed on mission and did exactly what he told me he was going to do throughout the surgery, despite the circumstances. And he didn't look at his clock and say, oh, I've got surgeries backed up all day long. We're just going to cut and run. Um, he didn't do that. But because of the blood loss, my recovery was, uh, was brutal, to say the least. It is, in and of itself, an extremely painful surgery. And, but the really cool thing about going to the hospital is, you know, they give you these amazing drugs. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have lots of friends who, you know, ladies go through natural childbirth without epidurals and stuff like that. And I think I kind of understand it, but I'm like, <laughs> they've got drugs for that stuff. Yeah, I was the beneficiary of many of those really good drugs with my 23 yeah. surgeries, but... What you're about to tell next, I cannot even imagine yeah. so, what you went so, through. Yeah, so th they weren't able to give me any painkillers. They were able to give me Tylenol. And so that very same surgeon who I had to reprimand, uh, my family physician who I had to reprimand, he was no longer my family physician because he switched practices and, you know, long story. But we were still friends and he came to the, to the hospital and he looked at my charts and he said, he just turned to me and said, dude, I have no idea how you're doing radical retropubic prostatectomy on Tylenol. And I said to him, one breath at a time. And that's literally what I was doing. I was in so much pain that I had to literally exist one breath at a time. And I, and I write about this in my book because when we're, when we're worried about something, we're thinking about the future. And we're projecting some negative outcome or some event that we don't want to happen in the future. I didn't have the luxury of thinking about the future. And I knew that with the little energy that I had, thinking about the future and worrying about the future would drain me of what little energy I had. And I didn't have any. And so I was literally taking 
one breath at a time and not even counting the breaths, not even looking at the wall clock and thinking, oh, well, it's going to be another two hours before they can give me Tylenol, which you know isn't even helping the headache that I have right now. Um, I was treating each breath as a unique event. And so I would breathe in, I would breathe out, and I would say, okay, Bruce, you took a breath. You didn't die. Let's do another one just like it. And that's what I did for, gosh, going on two and a half, almost three days, not even really aware of who was coming or going in, in the room just because I, I couldn't spend any time on conversation. Um, and then again, God breathed into me something that changed my life and changed my perspective because here I am in a lot of pain. I'm not happy about this pain. But what I realized was, was this. In the breathing in and the breathing out, that proves beyond the shadow of, of a doubt one irrefutable fact. In the ability to breathe, I have everything I need. That's wow, all you that need. That is profound, Bruce. That's all you need. In, in this moment, okay, so we're taught things like Maslow's hierarchy of need that talks about food, shelter, love, ultimately self-actualization. Who knows what that means? All you need is the ability to breathe in air, lungs that can oxygenate blood, pass it off to a heart that's pumping and can circulate it to the vital organs of our body and enough of a functioning cerebral cortex to keep that happening. That's all you need. So if you've got anything external to what you need, what do we call those things? Those are bonus. Those are gifts. Those are blessings. Those are extra. Okay. And so here's, here's what I'm talking about. Um, and we might be thinking that, well, in addition to the things that I need, it would be nice to have clue, shelter, food, clothing, love, all of these things. I'm not talking about that. Guys, we are, on a, uh, we are on a Skype call, and you can hear my voice. So you have, let's just call it the gift of hearing, okay? You don't need to be able to hear in order to be alive. We can see each other through our videos, and so we have the gift of sight. Helen Keller was deaf and blind, lived a perfectly productive, amazingly abundant life. There are people who either born with or, you know, through accidents lose their sense of taste or smell. I could smell the antiseptics, the gauze, the whatever. I could taste this nasty taste in my mouth from whatever it is they were pumping into me through my IV. I don't need to smell or taste in order to be alive. So all of these things, if you're looking for something to be grateful for in your life, and sometimes it's hard to be grateful when you're in the midst of extreme pain or desperation and someone says, oh, well, you've just got to be thankful for what you've got. It's hard to find something to be thankful for what you've got, right? So let's start here. If you have these basic physical senses, there's something to be thankful for. And then God showed me something else. It occurred to me 
that there are people who are born with, and I don't know the exact medical term for it, but I've read about it, people who are born without the ability to feel anything. And so they're constantly getting injured because they don't feel what they've just bumped up against or stuck their hand in. They can stick their hand in a fire and watch the flesh burn off of their, you know, their bones and they don't feel it. So the ability to feel is a gift. And so what happened to me was another one of these, oh my God, moments. This excruciating pain that I'm in is not a curse. It's a gift. And so my mantra changed. And so I'd take a breath in and I would hold it for a second and I would let it out. And I would still say, okay, Bruce, you took a breath. You didn't die. Thank you. And so I started saying thank you with every single breath I took. And peace just came. The pain didn't diminish. But this awareness that there's got to be reason, there's got to be meaning in this. And so rather than judging the pain, I just accepted it and and really the ability to feel it. I, I trusted that my doctor was telling me the truth, that the pain would get better at some point. And, and it did. But that's, that's really, you know, I thought that through the work that I had done from the time I was 43 up until the present, I thought I was a pretty grateful person and appreciated life and all the, um, the abundance that I have. God was saying, Bruce, you have no idea no idea how blessed you are. And it was through that process that, that I, I bathe every second of my day in gratitude without judgment, without, you know, so there's still lots of things that I want. Okay. Um, but I know that I don't need them and I absolutely don't need them to validate me in any way. I don't need anything or anybody to complete me or give me self-esteem or self-worth that it is me. I'd, l- I'd love for you to talk about, you know, you had this seven, eight years of really preparing yourself, talking about this relationship with God you developed, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we talked about, you know, so many people, we, we have these struggles and what you're talking about is, and we have these struggles, this worry, this anxiety, this stress, because we don't think we have what we need. And you just talked about looking at what we need in a very different way. So as you've moved forward from that point, um, when you work with people and you share and you coach, what have you noticed when, when you can help people embrace what you just shared and bring that into their life? Uh, it, uh, my, my goal in, in coaching anybody, my, my ultimate goal is, and, and it's, I, I, have, um, I work with people on, on trying to develop as much as you can. It's always a work in progress, um, but a, a personal purpose and mission statement. And, you know, for businesses, a, a, you know, the, a lot of people use mission and vision statements. And so I, I like in my life to have a purpose statement, which is very simple. My, my personal purpose is why do I exist? 
and I exist to love, to serve, and to add value to the lives of other people in some way. So my, my purpose, or rather my mission, how do I go about doing that? My mission in life is to help people live passionately as the fullest expression of who they were created to be. And that, again, can happen in so many different ways. And I accomplish that through, through coaching, through writing, through speaking. But my goal is to help you discover your purpose. What, why do you exist? How can you be the fullest expression of, of who you were created to be? Because what I learned in my own life was that I had spent so much time focused on trying to be what other people wanted me to be or what I thought other people wanted me to be. That what I realized was, you know, again, going back to this idea of identity and, you know, trying to be the best husband, to be the best dad, to be the best employer I could possibly be, that's missing the point. And, and I wrote in the, uh, the dedication to my book uh, a phrase. I, I dedicated the book to my two boys who are – they are my heroes. They've put up with so much stuff. Bruce is not a saint. Um, and Bruce has, has caused tremendous pain in their lives as well. But my boys, everybody in, on the planet, you, you two guys deserve the best Bruce that you can possibly have right and so my boys don't need me to be the best dad my friends don't need me to be the best friend my employees don't need me to be the best employer i could possibly be i can only be those when i'm the best bruce that i can possibly be and so i try to help people really ground their identity back in themselves back in their relationship with god and you know, again, not, not this con- – I, th- I spent so many years in my early Christian walk evaluating everything on this idea of am I pleasing God? Am I displeasing God? And so you know, this constant mm. – I don't think that's what God wants because what I, what I realize is I want to watch my boys interact and have fun and be the fullest expression of who they were created to be. And I know as a dad, it would grieve me if they were constantly living their lives thinking, okay, am I pleasing my dad or am I displeasing him? I am, am I in his favor or am I out of favor with this behavior? I love them unconditionally. And so being a dad has taught me so much about the character of God, you know, that, that so often the things we think are, are you know, humility and, and God honoring are really self-defecating, um, or self-deprecating. <laughs> Sorry about that <laughs> misspeak. Well, it's a little Say, bit of both, right? <laughs> and so when we say things like, oh, I, no, I, I deserve zero credit, no glory. I am nothing. God is everything. I don't know that that really pleases God. It wouldn't please me if I heard my boys say that, if they won some award at sports and said, no, no, I, I deserve, I am nothing. It would grieve me to hear my boys say, I am nothing, that everything is my dad. And, you know, so just really trusting that, that we are to rest in our relationship with our creator 
and not strive. You know, we, we are loved unconditionally. We are supported abundantly, so much more than we think we're supported. Oh, well, that's a beautiful answer, Bruce. And, you know, as we wrap up, people have been listening to this whole conversation, and I'm sure that, you know, this is bringing up a lot of really deep thoughts and introspection and just thoughts about the present and the future. And, uh, you know, what are some just final thoughts you'd like to leave with people? I want people to know that they are enough. You know, I, I meet so many people and, and I was, and I can speak to this because I had no self-esteem. I, I had such a poor self-image, first of all, because I, I expected it from other people. And, you know, so, so there was that, but I would, I would limit myself by thinking, oh, well, you know, I could never ask you know, back when I was a teenager, I, I could never ask that girl out because she's too pretty. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not physical or strong enough. So we have all of these things that say, well, I, I could never do that because, and there's some, I'm not enough. And that ultimately is, is what it comes down to is that this core belief that I am not enough. And, and I realized that I am enough and not in, not in a, I'm better than you enough. I'm just enough for who I am and for what I'm supposed to be. And the other thing that I would challenge people to, to think about that whatever it is that you're going through right now may not be the thing that destroys you. It may very well be the thing that saves you. You know, I would love for you to actually expand on that a little bit because that's a perspective okay. you've developed through a lot of just life experience and, and people that are, yeah. you know, right there and, and they just feel like, you know what, the burden, the weight of what yeah. I'm going through right now, like the pain you had in that bed. I mean, what's just one one it's, final comment on just how to shift that perspective? Well, just realizing that everything is thought. Everything, um, we only experience anything at any given moment through our thoughts about it in this moment. And so you can break your arm and you can be in extreme pain, but you're ultimately experiencing it through the thoughts about that pain and thoughts about yourself and about what you deserve or don't deserve, you know, this you know, I, you know, I don't deserve a break a broken arm, you know, or what is this going to do? And, and so we project all of this stuff onto the things that happen to us. And, and I love uh, required reading for anybody who I work with is Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And, you know, so how is it that that people can come out of the Holocaust experience, a, a tragedy by you know <laughs> any standard, okay? But how is it that men and women like, like Viktor Frankl, like Corey Ten Boom, um, can come out of this experience arguably stronger in their faith and in their belief in God, their belief in themselves? How can they come out of this experience that hundreds of thousands of other people survived as well, yet for them it was what destroyed them. It can't have been the event, okay? Because if, if event equals outcome, then 
if we all experience, you know, if a earthquake comes and destroys all of our houses, then ideally if event equals outcome, we should all feel the same about it, right? But it's all, it's all about how we respond to these events, you know, and very often we don't get to choose the paths we walk down in life. God, God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. What he does give us the ability to do, though, is choose the attitude by which we walk that path. So well, that- I think what's so important there, and you know, it's something I work with my clients on uh, very deeply. Uh, we call it TFA. And, uh, but it, it's thoughts, feelings, and actions because those thoughts, whatever you're thinking about something, is going to lead to the feelings that come out. Those feelings are always going to inform your actions. So if you want to change what's going on in your life, how you're viewing yourself, the results you're getting, the relationship that you have, you are so right, Bruce. It all starts with how you think about everything and taking the time to be introspective and really look at how you're responding to everything, how you're thinking about everything, and then bring that as you transform your heart to that heart of Christ to, to get alignment with that. Yes. Um, what can happen in your life can just, like you're talking about, open up no matter what you're going through um, is living that life of joy. And I think joy is internal. Happiness is a lot of times given to us by our external circumstances. I might not be happy that my house just got wiped out by an earthquake, mm-hmm. but I can be joyful knowing that this is actually, that good is going to come out of this eventually. Amen. If you'd like more information about Bruce, his book, his blog, his website, all that and more, be sure to find all those links, eternalleadership.com slash 086. That's eternalleadership.com slash 086. As you may have seen in the podcast feed yesterday, I gave an update that for the rest of the year, John and I are going to be releasing only one new episode per week. We're going to take this time that we are freeing up to possibly start a mastermind group or two, launch some webinars for past podcast guests, probably more. But this is where you come in. We're requesting your feedback because maybe a specific show has impacted you or you'd like us to cover a specific topic like finding clarity in your calling or dreaming with God. We want to hear from you. So email me, steve at eternalleadership.com. That's steve at eternalleadership.com or my partner, John, john at eternalleadership.com. Or let us know through Facebook, facebook.com slash eternalleadership or Twitter at eternal leaders. Next time on Eternal Leadership, the founder and president of Professional Christian Coaching Institute, Chris McCluskey. Knock and keep on knocking and it will be opened. Now, will you step through? And will you be faithful? Will you stay the course? Not if, when the challenges come. Because I said, when the challenges come, I will be with you. Christ said that to us. It's not if. And we don't get spooked so badly that we bail when those challenges come. You just modify plan A. You find a way around, over, or or under, right? But you keep pressing to get through to the fullness of what you feel like God's really called you to. Chris talks about closing a very successful psychology and counseling practice in Florida to be on the cutting edge of this new life coaching, leadership coaching, executive coaching wave. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.